Hey everyone, Emery and Kelsey here. Welcome to our podcast, Hidden Figures, of women, for women, by women. As two women majoring in international relations, we have realized that many international affairs are often framed, written, and discussed through the perspectives of men. This podcast is devoted to the significant and oftentimes overlooked role that women play in shaping, changing, and participating in these contemporary global issues. From political representation to economic development, Hidden Figures seeks to explore the unique challenges women face and the different perspectives we bring to the table. We would like to thank the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College for supporting this podcast, and digital artist Sabrina Stone for drawing our cover art. This podcast will be divided into two parts. First, we will interview our guest, Ms. Valerie Hudson, about her books, Sex and World Peace and The Hillary Doctrine, Sex in American Foreign Policy. Then we will summarize our thoughts by reflecting on the interview. This episode will focus on the role of women in national security. It was inspired by a speech given by Hillary Clinton in 2010, where she talks about how securing women's rights and empowering women should be considered an issue of national security. Since then, it has been generally acknowledged that there is a significant correlation between nations who fail to protect the physical security and rights of women and the nations most at risk for conflict and perpetuating crimes against humanity. This view, now known as the Hillary Doctrine, has been influential in shaping American foreign policy. As such, in today's episode, we want to talk about why empowering women worldwide should be a cornerstone of the U.S.'s national security agenda. For this podcast, we will be interviewing Valerie Hudson, a professor and George H.W. Bush chair in the Department of International Affairs at Texas A&M University. Ms. Hudson specializes in gender and security and also directs the Bush School's program on women, peace, and security. She was recognized as one of the top 100 most influential global thinkers by foreign policy in 2009, and her books have also received major attention and coverage from two news sources as, such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, BBC, and CNN. Aside from the two books we're interviewing her about today, Ms. Hudson has also co-authored the award-winning book, Bear Branches, Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population. Her most recent book, The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, was published this year and is another great addition to her outstanding research and work in the field of gender and security. Dr. Hudson, thank you so much for being here today. We're just going to jump right into the interview questions. Kels, would you like to start? One of the things that your book comprehensively illustrated, which is that there are many studies that confirm that securing security for women globally is directly correlated to increased national security. So since this, this is the biggest argument from your book, um, Sex and sex and world peace. Can you explain a bit to our podcast audience why gender equality is such an important yet overlooked facet of national security? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, When we think about politics in the world, 
something that we overlook is that the very first um, political order is the sexual political order. Uh, before there are nations, before there are identities, um, there are uh, human collectives who are divided into roughly half, uh, roughly those who can be fathers and those who can be the mothers of the people. Uh, and we argue that the political order that is established between men and women uh, sets the template for the political order uh, that will uh, reign in that society. Uh, and so one can imagine a continuum uh, along which uh, societies could be placed. For example, do men and women stand before each other as equals or as unequals? Is resource distribution and access to important uh, assets, is that shared? or is that the prerogative of, of men? Uh, if uh, there's conflict, how is that conflict to be resolved? Is it resolved by compromise or is it result by you know, men dominating or acting violently towards uh, women? How about the decision-making in the society? Uh, is it joint decision-making or is it decision-making by one group um, for the other? Uh, and so we suggest that these are deeply, deeply political questions. And the first answers are given in the relationship between men and women, even at the very household level. And that these will begin to extend out into the broader society as it develops. So autocracy will seem absolutely natural if autocracy is what is experienced in the home between men and women. Violence will be seen as the go-to conflict resolution uh, mechanism uh, if violence is the go-to conflict mechanism, uh, conflict resolution mechanism between men and women in the home. Uh, exploitation, rontierism, predatory economics will seem absolutely natural if exploitation of women is what was experienced in the home. So we believe that there are very good theoretical reasons for the results that have been found in this literature, that when women are insecure, nations are insecure. Thank you. Um, so moving on from that, like in your book, you wrote um, that, sorry, in your book, you write that there are three aspects you believe constitute the biggest threat or barrier to achieving gender equality, um, lack of physical security, lack of equity in family law, and lack of parity in the councils of human decision-making. So how do these solutions um, in addressing each of these issues differ, but how are they also similar? Well, certainly with lack of physical security, um, that in a sense is the foundation for uh, other things, such as inequity in family law and the exclusion of women from decision-making, right? If women were not subject uh, to the violence of men, if there were protection from women against the violence of men, then we would have a much easier time reforming family law and a much easier time ensuring that both men and women uh, have a seat at the decision-making table for the society. Uh, so in a sense, I see physical security as kind of the, the bedrock uh, for women. But then absolutely, unless men and women stand as equals before the law, uh, then there will be no 
law within that society because everyone will know that there are some who are more favored by the law than others, right? Uh, when the first political order is invoked, women are, will be at a disadvantage simply because they are women. Uh, and then lastly, uh, once we have rule of law, once we have physical security, uh, clearly the next step is to ensure that men and women have equal voices in the decision-making for the society. So I do believe that they are interrelated and they may even be sequential, um, but I think it will take, um, you know, differing types of things uh, to address each one. Um, so quotas for women in the legislature, that's not gonna tackle problems of physical violence, um, but certainly, you know, as a package, uh, they all come together very nicely. So we were also curious about like the relationship between women and other women. Um, in your book, you write that women may be co-opted into voluntarily, sometimes even eagerly participating in gendered microaggression against other women or even themselves. And you cite that many examples of female, uh, or you cite many examples of female infanticide, female genital cutting, and microaggressions from women to other women. While these occurrences are persistent in many countries around the world, um, could you give any examples or expand on how we might see gender microaggression in nations that might be regarded as being more successful in closing the gender gap? Oh, certainly. Um, and, and I think if I asked you uh, uh, to give examples, I think you probably could too. Uh, women are often, uh, in fact, may even be evolutionarily selected for, as my colleague Rose McDermott insists, um, to be highly vigilant against uh, the presence of other women um, because uh, male protection and male security is a scarce resource, then it's, uh, it becomes um, necessary for women to compete against each other for those scarce resources. At least that's how uh, uh, Professor McDermott explains it. Um, but certainly I've seen it in my own life. Um, you know, um, there have been uh, women who've gone before me, who instead of saying, there's no way I'm going to let the next generation of women go through what I go through, have basically taken the attitude, well, if I had to go through it, you have to go through it. You know, uh, so I think, you know, there, there are times in which uh, I think women can be their own worst enemy. But again, I, I take Professor McDermott's point seriously, which is in a sense, women were bred to never have solidarity with one another, right? We were selected, right? Uh, in the evolutionary past for our willingness to turn on each other. Uh, and so I think that this is something that we're gonna have to you know, overcome if we're going to make any um, significant progress. Yeah, um, on that topic, actually, uh, one of my, well, it's kind of on the topic, it's 
So one of my favorite sections of the book was the discussion um, about how like male dominated social structures developed through our culture and led to a patriarchal global order. And you kind of mentioned that too, and like how, you know, maybe women were bi um, biologically selected to kind of compete for scarce resources. Um, but so you write, like we are seeing a complex and varying interplay between genetic, epigenetic and extragenic influences. And um, the result thereof is subject to change by, among other things, altered cultural values. So it's true that gender hierarchies are persistent and pervasive in human history. Um, but in your book, you write that they are not inevitable. So how can we as a global society eradicate these extragenic influences and alter our cultural values to change the gendered system in which our society currently operates? Um, like, is eradicating such an ancient hierarchy of human behavior even a possible goal in the near future? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm one of those optimists. I may be a jaded and cynical optimist, but I am an optimist. Um, you know, I take that optimism from uh, seeing my own household and seeing how the men and women in my own household are able to interact without violence, without coercion, without exploitation. And then I also see in the lives of my students who are the future, that they are developing relationships um, that are, are not based on a hierarchical stereotype of who's the man in this relationship and you're the woman in this relationship. And you know, that means I have the final say. And I, you know, I, I think these things are definitely changing. Uh, and as they are changing, I, I think that um, we're going to see a different selection process. Uh, but to go back to what we were just talking about, that new selection process isn't going to take place unless we start tackling women's physical insecurity, women's inequality before the law, and women's absence at the tables of decision making. If we can tackle those three clusters of issues, then I think that we will be selecting for strong women women who can um, walk in solidarity with other women uh, and women who will be truly equal partners of men and not some sort of junior partner of men. Yeah, so you talk about like the absence of like female leaders and like female decision makers. And we do see a disparity between the number of male and female leaders, representatives, or in pretty much any government position or even in business, um, and especially in almost every other country in the world too. Um, in your book, you cite that a major reason for that is because women can be perceived as competent or likable, but not both. Um, and you write that this judgment seems to result from simple prejudice, but that such prejudices can be overridden after voters actually see females in action. Um, this seems to be a bit of a catch-22. A woman needs to have a leadership position to seem competent, but she cannot seem competent because she does not yet have a leadership position. So what potential solutions or steps in the right direction do you think are necessary to solve this seemingly inescapable conflict? Oh, I think, I think we're seeing some real good movement on it. For example, um, even though the United States, I think, lags behind, right? Um, certainly in the last um, election, we saw that, um, uh, you know, the female candidate was seen as super competent, but absolutely unlikable. And so people felt justified in not voting for her 
despite the fact that she was super competent. However, it's true that it is not just the United States that our new globalized world can point to. Um, so Americans have had the experience of seeing Angela Merkel be the leader of um, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful European nation for over a decade. Um, and we've certainly seen other uh, women leaders, I think, emerge, especially in Scandinavia and other places as highly competent. Um, certainly the, the recent pandemic, there was a fascinating article by Forbes, which pointed out that those countries that were led by women had a far lower death rate and were much more well prepared for the pandemic than those who were led by, shall we call it, the alpha male uh, leaders of the world. So um, fortunately in our new globalized society, I think uh, that even Americans can see examples of successful female leadership and perhaps become more prepared to accept that in the future. However, uh, we must not overlook that in the state house, uh, in governor's mansions, um, there's much better representation of women in the United States than there is in the US Congress or uh, in the presidency. Um, so I, I think things are changing, um, but they change slowly. And one of the problems is that um, researchers, I think, have convincingly shown that when societies are under extreme duress, they often revert to traditional understandings of what kind of leader they need. They want that strong male leader with that square jaw who's going to uh, keep them safe. So I think we need to be, again, you know, vigilant to make sure that we don't regress into these older stereotypes, which are at odds with reality. Yeah, so on the topic of Hillary Clinton, um, you actually wrote a really great book called The Hillary Doctrine, which is uh, Sex and American Foreign Policy, in which you kind of talked about how Hillary Clinton was the first Secretary of State that really tried um, to emphasize how big of a threat uh, the lack of women rights are in many areas of the world to US national security. Um, so could you expand to our pod podcast audience a bit First of all, like what the Hillary Doctrine is, but also how significant do you think it has been um, in changing not only the course of U.S. foreign policy, but also the global movement of women's rights in the 21st century? Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed that book. It was a real pain in the butt to write. So the fact that somebody actually got something out of it makes me very, very happy that I went through all that pain. Uh, but yes, the Hillary Doctrine is the simple understanding um, that um, women's insecurity is actually a threat to national security. That we cannot delink national security from women's security, as has been uh, the case for basically all of recorded human history. Uh, and that what's happening with the women can actually have large and outsized effects on what's happening at the nation state level. Um, and so Hillary Clinton did come into the Secretary of State uh, position um, a little over four years in that position um, and did her darndest to try to implement the Hillary Doctrine through the mechanisms of the, the State Department and USAID, which this, 
which is now part of the State Department. And so in our book, we chronicle all the, the many uh, pronouncements, all the many um, initiatives, all the programming um, that came during those four plus years with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. Uh, and there was a lot that was done. The problem is, is there's only so much that you can change from Washington, D.C. So while the rhetoric coming out of D.C., the, uh, the QDDR, the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, was very, very strong on the Hillary Doctrine. The, the National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security came out while she was Secretary of State. The Office of Global Women's Issues was elevated and its ambassador reports directly to the Secretary of State. I think that's still the case, but don't quote me on it because um, a lot changed with the last election. Um, all of these things um, were absolutely remarkable. And yet at the ground level, when we began to interview people who were tasked with implementing these programs on the ground, we found a much more mixed picture. We found some excellent successes, such as with mobile justice units in Latin America that the US helped fund. But we also found some really awful stuff as well, where um, the people, you gotta understand that um, our development money is not spent by uh, employees of our federal government. These, are, these programs are contracted out to big mega contractors based in the US. And then these mega contractors contracted out to subcontractors and they in turn may contract it out to sub subcontractors. That's how it works. And I can assure you that at the sub subcontractor level, nobody's interested in the Hillary doctrine. Nobody's interested in gender equality. Uh, and so we found even horrible things where by day, these sub subcontractors were supposed to be implementing Hillary Clinton's policies. And at night they were running brothels and trafficking local women. I'm sure it's just, uh, it just was crazy. So I think those, you know, four years is not enough to change everything. Um, but I think there was a lot of important work done. I think it led to the Women, Peace and Security Act of 2017, which has codified some of these commitments but I think there's still a lot more to be done. Yeah, so you brought up a really interesting point when you said that there's only so much you can change in four years or even from you know government initiatives. And I think this is a point you brought up in your book as well when you referred to the state kind of as a double-edged sword in regards to its ability to protect and further women's rights. Uh, can you expand on this idea and do you think that top-down approaches, such as laws and institutions, um, is always the best way to achieve gender equality? Why or why not? Oh, that's a brilliant question. That's a very insightful question. Um, what we argued in our book, Sex and World Peace, is that it has to be a pincer movement. That is, you need work from the top down and you need work from the bottom up. And if you only have one of those, ain't nothing gonna change. You need them both. Um, and, and so we, we do say that the state is a double-edged sword for women. Um, so th the state can be a real protector of women. So if your significant other, you know, beat you to a pulp, you know, 
the state can come in, drag him away, and give him 20 years in prison so he can never harm you again, and maybe has a reparations or restitution fund whereby you can access money and services to heal from that, okay? That would be tremendous, okay? But the state, the state's power can also be used very intrusively to control women. And we see this, for example, in the People's Republic of China with the, uh, the one po child policy. And a lot of people don't understand just how coercive and how intrusive that policy was. So if you were employed as a woman in China, uh, there would be actually people from the government who would come to your workplace and track your period. And if you missed your period, right, they would drag you out to do a pregnancy test. And if you were pregnant without permission, they could forcibly abort your child. I mean, extremely intrusive. Um, it, it can also be not just extremely intrusive, but ex extremely um, controlling. So in the last years of the, the Cold War, um, the Ceausescu regime in Romania banned women from all birth control and all abortion. Okay, you just couldn't access birth control or abortion in Romania, which filled orphanages with unwanted children and was, I would argue, as intrusive, um, you know, a, a foray into women's lives uh, as we saw with the People's Republic of China, uh, two sides of the force. So yes, the state is often the ultimate guarantor of women's equality vis-a-vis -vis men. But at the same time, the power of the state can be deployed to harm and control women's most intimate choices. So you have to treat the power of the state very gently because it is a, a double-edged sword. On that topic, um, we were just talking about, you know, like all of these policies that governments have done from, you know, China's uh, forced abortion policy to kind of banning contraceptives. Well, this can, sometimes can be, you know, a very delicate situation in which individual governments such as the U.S. may have a hard time intervening because it looks like perhaps they're impeding on the state's sovereignty to kind of direct and create their policies as they see fit. Um, so how can uh, individual governments such as the U.S. you know, navigate this tricky balance, but how do uh, multilateral organizations come in to kind of alleviate this pressure of individual governments um, pushing forward their agenda? And where do we see multilateral, where do we see multilateral organizations such as the UN or NATO playing a role in this movement? Oh, it plays a huge role because you're absolutely right. You know, one kind of pushback that the United States often gets is, who the heck are you to tell us about women's rights? All right, look at the situation in your own country, all right? Uh, and I think that's a completely valid criticism, absolutely valid criticism. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's very, very important is that um, there does exist a global human rights treaty called CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Uh, and that was uh, first put out for signature in 1979. 
and it has, I believe, 184 signatories, second only to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, and so uh, it sets out, if you will, a framework for women's equal rights with men. Uh, and it's an extremely important document because with all these signatories, what the world is saying is that women are owed equal rights. So it's not some Western country with a patchy record on women's rights like the US saying you need to help your women more. It's you know the human rights treaty framework in um, which um, CEDAW is a crown jewel saying that these are universal human rights that women hold. So I, you're absolutely right. These multilateral organizations, especially the global ones like the UN are key. Um, at the same time, it is also true that uh, non-governmental organizations within the country are the most powerful observer of what's going on and what should be done. Uh, and so in the past, instead of the US sort of marching into a country and saying, here are the plans we have for helping your women, you know, that has certainly changed to approaching these organizations and saying, what is it that you think needs to be done? How can we be an ally? How can we help you in that? This has been complicated, however, by um, increasing legislation from countries such as Russia and, and others who have suggested that if a non-governmental organization in their country takes any foreign funding, then they are a foreign agent. They are not uh, a non-governmental organization with protections under their law. Uh, and so they can be banned, um, their assets can be seized, their leaders can be jailed. Um, so this is a, a new front in, in kind of the, how do we do this? Um, uh, so the, the, the usual path of funneling money to women's NGOs within uh, countries has now been compromised and that's very worrisome. Yeah, and on like the involvement of the US, you mentioned that our history and reputation might be a bit patchy and to like expand on that. So especially as our leader right now, um, and to like reference a bit about your book, you argue that men justify violence against women by condoning, um, condoning this type of behavior verbally. And I kind of wanted to go on to like the other pinstrip of like, um, bottom-up behavior, and you write that it has been found that men's aggression towards women can be accounted for in part by engagement in hostile talk about women with male peers. Now, this engagement in hostile talk about women is rem reminiscent of what is referred to as locker room talk and has been publicly displayed by President Trump. Um, could you talk about, like, why does engagement in hostile talk about women pose a detriment to gender equality? gender equality, and how can we persuade people that these seemingly innocuous interactions actually have widespread negative impacts on how our society views women? Wow, that's a great question. Yes, um, in our um, latest book, which is called The First Political Order, 
How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. We make the argument that uh, in a, an anarchic system, that the, um, that the most prevalently chosen mechanism to assure security for the group is the male fraternity, the male fraternity. Uh, and that this is often codified in um, patrilineal, patrilocal norms. Uh, and that you can see this worldwide. However, the male fraternity is in it for their own good, not necessarily for the good of the men and the women of the society. They are in it for the good of the men of the society. And so I believe that um, what we've shown in that book is that societies that are based on male bonded fraternities are much more violent, much more inequitable, much more predatory, much more violent overall uh, and hierarchical um, than other kinds of collectives. So by choosing the male fraternity, you in a sense seal your fate as a collective or as we put it in the book, if you curse your women, you're gonna curse your nation state. So anything that builds male fraternity, that stokes male fraternity vis-a-vis -vis women is going to be a very toxic um, element. Uh, so locker room talk, male bonding through putting women down, um, joking about them, rating them, talking about what they would like to do to these women's bodies, right? All of that breeds a toxic male fraternity and undermines the security of your society. So no, I certainly abhor, you know, what I have seen from um, leaders even in our own nation who think that that's some sort of harmless banter. Heck no. That is the worst and most poisonous type of banter because it undermines an equitable political order between men and women in the society. Yeah, so on that topic, I think, you know, one actionable goal that every um, perhaps guy or even girl could do um, moving forward is, you know, to refrain from hostile, to hostile talk about their women counterparts. But um, beyond this, um, how can the women and men who are watching this podcast do their small part in helping push forward gender equality? You know, what are actionable goals we can take today that will bring us one step closer to a world in which women are given the same rights and security as their male counterparts? That's wonderful. Um, I agree with you. We have an entire section of our book that talks about, if you will, these bottom-up efforts. Uh, and it, it, it can start even very, very close to home. It can start in your relationships with women and your relationships with men. Um, so um, women um, can begin to forge uh, different and less competitive relationships with other women. 
and women can insist on equality in the relationships with men. One of the things I tell my students at the end of our uh, class uh, on women and nations is I say, one of the nicest things that you could do for men is to walk, talk, and act like they're equal. Because if you behave according to you know, stereotypes of the weak woman, the incompetent woman, you know, the woman who always needs help, then you're not helping men to see women as equal partners. Now, likewise, men, right, um, in their relationships with other men, are they laughing at jokes that disparage women? Are they rating women and talking about their bodies with other men? If so, you know, you should not be engaged in that kind of thing, right? Talk about something else. And then in their relationships with women, what are they expecting? Are they exploiting these women, right? Um, are they leaving women to do uh, all of the stereotypical female chores? Um, you know, these are the kinds of, of ground truths that demonstrate, um, you know, whether we have a commitment to, to equality between men and women or not. And then of course, there's a whole host of things that you can do. We have magnificent NGOs in this country who are striving for gender equality within our own society, as well as in, in other societies that may have fewer resources than our own. There is so much that can be done. And there's so many good people putting their shoulder to the wheel um, that I don't think we have to despair that this is a lost cause. It's not a lost cause by any means. In fact, it's, it's the cause of all causes, if you will, uh, because it is about that foundational first political order in the society, which makes everything else tick. Yeah, we also wanted to ask you more about like that first political order um, in reference to your 2020 book and like the way that we might frame um, how we see different countries and their stages. Um, in that book, you create a framework that's different from the way that we learn about political orders in our IR class, you know, like Global North versus Global South or the economic first, second and third world orders. Um, but instead, you shape the world order according to the syndrome, right? Post-syndrome, transition, and syndrome nations. Could you explain a bit to our podcast audience what these stages mean? And since most of our podcast listeners are in the U.S., can you talk about what stage the U.S. is in? Absolutely. Um, in that book, and I, I'd like to point out um, kind of interestingly, the research for that book was funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, so we, we've always found that to be um, both heartening and somewhat ironic um, because the Department of Defense has an interesting relationship with the women, peace and security uh, agenda. Um, uh, however, to get back to your point, uh, in that book, we develop a theory that suggests that there is what we call the patrilineal fraternal syndrome, um, that there are um, practices and customs um, that are designed to keep women subordinate to men. Uh, and so um, these include violence against women, but it also includes things like um, 
prevalent polygyny, cousin marriage, lack of property rights for women, um, son preference and sex ratio alterations, uh, bride price, dowry, and a whole host of others. So we actually look at 11 different um, variables that we believe comprise this, um, this syndrome. Uh, and so uh, we used the Defense Department's money to hire a small army of research assistants that uh, collected uh, data on these practices because for a lot of these, there just isn't, you know, there isn't any data. Uh, for example, I dare you to find uh, rates of patrilocal marriage worldwide in the year uh, 2020. You know, you're not going to find it. Uh, so we really had to do some intensive digging in order to get this, um, this data. Um, and so once we got that data and we were able to scale these countries according to you know, how fully uh, they went with this patrilineal fraternal syndrome, we discovered a really interesting trichotomy. There were a cluster of nations that were clearly you know, really not instantiating um, these practices. There were a cluster of nations that were like totally <laughs> um, undertaking these practices. And then we had this fascinating cluster in the middle. Um, and uh, a lot of these, for example, were uh, post-Soviet nations that were creeping back towards their traditional practices. But there were also nations going the other way, nations that had been very oppressive of women, but that were moving in a better direction. And so uh, when we were doing our um, statistical analyses, we noted that these three groups had vastly different outcomes in terms, uh, we looked at something like 122 uh, outcome variables on a variety of dimensions of national security. And so we discovered that there was in fact a statistically significant difference between these three groups on the outcome variables. Um, so that in general, and again, here I'm speaking generally, um, those that did not encode these practices had far better outcomes. Those that fully encoded the practices had the worst outcomes. And those that were in that middle or transition state had in-between outcomes. Um, and so in um, science jargon, um, we call this a dose-dependent effect, so that we were able to show that even as if you're only able to ameliorate, say, half of these practices, you will see a tangible difference in your levels of national security. Uh, and so we offer, as you say, a different view. Instead of um, talking about first, second, third, and fourth worlds, or the global north and the global south, Let's talk about post-syndrome, syndrome, and transitional um, uh, governments or collectives. And uh, that, we think, will give greater purchase on what kind of um, initiatives and programs would be uh, most useful. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that's our last question about your work and your research, but we do have a few general questions about women in IR that we always really like to ask our guests. Um, so our first question 
is just about like the unique perspectives that women and women's identities bring to the table. Um, and especially like in your book, you suggest that the role of women in society and government and the treatment of women can affect a society's propensity to adopt a particular government system. So what unique perspectives do you think that a woman's identity can bring to the table to affect these structures and any future changes? Well, one of the, the, the most interesting things that's brought to the table when you bring women to the table is concrete knowledge about how life works. Uh, elite men usually have very little understanding of how life actually runs because they aren't doing the cooking. They aren't taking their kids to the doctors. You know, they're, they're not having to actually navigate um, the world of rules uh, and laws and structures in the same way that someone, you know, like uh, a mother needs to do in that society. Um, Swanee Hunt, Ambassador Swanee Hunt tells this amazing story. Um, she was a part of the, um, uh, the negotiations when South Sudan uh, became independent. So I think she was an observer at those negotiations. And um, the two sides, which are comprised of men, <laughs> were arguing about a particular border line between the two countries. And they were arguing over um, who would get um, the creek, this particular creek that ran across um, this, this uh, piece of territory. Uh, and she was in contact with the women's groups and mentioned this to them. And they said, there hasn't been a creek there in, in a dozen years. That disappeared a long time ago. There is no creek there anymore. Well, how do the women know this? Well, because they, they go and fetch the water, right? They do the laundry. They actually know if there's a creek there. These elite men that were sitting in the capital cities had no idea. Uh, so, you know, women bring a really, I think, a concrete, practicalist type of reasoning. They also bring a reasoning that is centered in, um, I think, uh, child welfare. And child welfare often translates into a longer time horizon um, for evaluating benefits and costs. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of our most famous leaders in the environmental movement are women. Women tend to bring a much longer time perspective, an orientation towards uh, time horizons than men do. So there's just a couple of examples, I think, that suggest that, that you may get very different outcomes if women are uh, at the table. Another thing um, I recall from the literature uh, that uh, Tali Mendelberg and Chris Karpowitz have done is to discover that when you add a significant number of women to a deliberation, so they're at least a third or, or more than half, then um, you actually get away from uh, zero-sum reasoning the I win, you lose type of reasoning, that there tends to be a gravitation towards what they call more commun uh, communitarian values. 
where there's a search for how could we all win rather than I, I'm going to win and you're going to lose. Um, so I think there's some evidence that there really is a difference when you bring women to the table. Now, it's not that you want a manless table. Of course not, because I think men bring interesting things to the table as well. But maybe we need to have relatively equal uh, representation of men and women. Uh, researchers have shown that the most creative and practical solutions come when you have mixed sex groups making decisions. Yeah, so you have definitely led an incredible and impressive career, you know, researching, teaching, and writing about gender equality and its relation to national security. So what recommendations or advice would you give to women interested in pursuing a career focused on the issue of gender equality in the realm of international relations? You know, whether that be running for office to push forward this agenda, volunteering in NGOs that focus on this issue, or catalyzing the discussion through their research and books. Hey, all of the above. One of the most wonderful things about this life is that nobody gets anything accomplished by being a one-trick pony. All right, so you yourself need to engage at different levels. You need to encourage, um, you know, the women that you know and the men that you know to be engaged at all these different levels. It's really true that all together we'll be able to lift this. Um, but I think um, we need everyone's skills and everyone's particular talents in order for this to turn around. We need storytellers. We need researchers. We need activists. Uh, we need accountants. Uh, we need all sorts of talents in order to turn this around for women. And I feel sure that, that your generation is going to make very great strides in that direction. Thank you so much to Valerie Hudson for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast. We absolutely loved reading all of her books and hopefully you guys will look at the description and maybe read some of them as well. Thank you guys also for sticking around to listening to the entire podcast and we hope to see you next time.